All righty, let's get started. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 24, in the middle of a dramatic uh, incident where Paul the Apostle is standing trial, uh, being tried for uh, being a Christian, of all things. And so uh, we are going to pick up where we left off there in the 24th chapter of the book of Acts after we ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here. We ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we just always acknowledge that we know the word of God didn't have its origin in man. It's not a book written by men. It's a book penned by men, but by the breath of God flowing and writing through them. So we acknowledge, Lord, the... the the divinity, the divine origin of the scriptures that we're gonna talk about even this morning, we ask to be changed in the process. In Christ's name, amen. amen. People wind up in court defending themselves for all kinds of matters, don't they? Uh, some of them serious and uh, legitimate, others not so much. So those are the cases without any merit at all. Sometimes we're call, we call them frivolous lawsuits, trumped up charges and the like. And uh, I have a slide just to get you into the theme of what we're talking about as Paul is going to be in a court of law even not for the first time, nor shall it be the last as he stands trial for being a Christian and causing a lot of trouble or at least that's part of the charge. So, frivolous lawsuits, right? Uh, like, for example, suing an airline company because legroom seemed less than adequate and less than what was promised. Hmm. Uh, another example, suing Starbucks recently for the tea being uh, unreasonably hot. Okay. I think they were inspired by that hot coffee incident with Mickey D's, right? Uh, how about suing a weatherman because he predicted sunny and mild, but it rained and it ruined her new dress and uh, her whole day and she was very upset. Mm. I know, sorry. <laughs> Last but not least, suing an exec from Anheuser-Busch, very famous case. Uh, well, they were defending themselves because someone found that their advertising, especially on television and commercials, uh, was misleading and disingenuous. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Uh, apparently, beautiful girls do not show up every time you open up a can <laughs> of their product, and neither are you transported to a uh, Tahiti Island paradise with all your best friends always smiling with no troubles in sight. Well, yeah, he sued them. <laughs> now, Paul the Apostle is in court this morning. Um, he's facing charges here in Acts 24, the merits of which are just as ludicrous <laughs> and frivolous as any of the cases I just mentioned. So uh, he's charged with this terrible crime of being a Christian. Walking down the street, minding his own business, and his eyes got open to the truth that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, 
He received him. He found out that Jesus was the way to get to heaven, and so he, he was preaching the good news, caring about people, living an exemplary life, and he still finds himself uh, in a courtroom defending uh, his very life. And so the immediate context before we dive into court uh, here, the past 20 years, Paul's been pretty effective at um, planting churches. He's a well-known evangelist, and he's uh, evangelized the whole Roman world, really, the Mediterranean. And now he's looking, um, he's back, rather, uh, to Jerusalem. He's just arrived for two-week uh, time, and it is basically for a two-week time for the holidays. But he's apprehended by some gospel haters who hate him too. There in the temple, you'll recall, there was a riot. The Roman military police break it up. And uh, he appears before the Jewish high court, so even before this courtroom scene. Uh, but in the middle of testifying, something went really wrong, and there was a riot again. And so the Romans tossed him back into protective custody in a jail when, lo and behold, a plot to kill Paul and take his life was exposed. And so the commander wisely sends Paul with quite the military escort, you'll recall, 470 well-equipped Roman soldiers, took him 60 miles north to be out of that jurisdiction, which, which uh, clearly was not a safe place for the apostle to be tried. So last we heard, God had outsmarted the 40 thugs who had that murderous conspiracy and uh, Paul was escorted out of town, like I said, uh, north 60 miles. And uh, he was handed to uh, Governor Felix. Now, we're going to meet him today. Governor, Governor Felix is the new uh, presiding judge, all right? And with Paul came a letter from the commander in Jerusalem. And we read that last time. It just said, really, this guy, Paul, is public enemy number one here in Jerusalem. We rescued him time and again from angry mobs. They really are intent on killing this guy. It's not safe for him to be here in Jerusalem. So I've examined him. He's innocent as far as I'm concerned, the commander. But I've sent him to you to be tried there where it's a lot safer. Maybe you guys can get to the bottom of it. Good luck. All right, and so Felix places uh, the Apostle Paul, now a prisoner, under house arrest in Herod's palace there in Caesarea, awaiting for his accusers to come down from Jerusalem uh, to make their case. Now, what do you know? Here come the haters now. Verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to, to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. Sorry. Do you get what I'm trying to get at there? All right. Wait, it gets worse. Uh, 
Most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. <laughs> but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Paul saw that as a compliment, I'm sure. <laughs> wow, all over the world. Hmm. He is a ringleader of that Nazarene cult. And he is it's a sect. And even tried to desecrate the Jewish temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these things, around, about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. So let's pause there. Now, this chapter is not going to just tell you about what happens in this morning's trial, but also what will happen in Paul's life for two years. And so uh, the chapter divides quite nicely, very easy to understand and to preach. Uh, when it divides into nice uh, three little points. We're going to meet three people. So three stars of chapter uh, 24. Number one is Tertullus, who you just met. So number one, Tertullus tells lies. Number two, Paul. We're going to hear from Paul as he makes his defense. Paul still denies. And number three, we're going to meet Governor Felix again and hear what he has to say Felix, quite unwise. So, Tertullus, Paul, and Felix. Here we go. Let's talk about this uh, prosecuting attorney, the slick guy, this hired gun that the Jewish Supreme Court, though one of them could present the case, oh, no, no, they reach into their bottomless resources there, the high priest who ordered Paul be struck in the mouth. He's there now with all of the other ones. And so they have hired this guy. Let's talk about him. Who is he? The Greek says reo. He's a reo. And, and, and where we get the word rhetoric. All right. So he's a, a master at words or an orator or a lawyer. And so he's no ordinary lawyer. This guy's sharp. He's called a Hellenized Jew. That means... In every way, he identifies with those mean-spirited, hateful Jews who hate the gospel and Paul. He himself is a racial Jew, but he wasn't probably born in Israel. In fact, he's probably educated somewhere in Alexandria, in the Greek-speaking world. So he's very much like Paul, but Paul is a lot smarter even than he. Now, uh, they, they need this guy because they want to kind of meet Rome where Rome's at. They want to walk into the court and be respected. They don't want to be seen as uh, robed religious Pharisees who just know about Israel and Judaism. They want somebody in a really brand new suit and a nice leather satchel and a Rolex watch. And, and he comes in, slick back here. You know, he should shave it. He would improve him. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> there he is, you know, and he starts off what? With flattery and lies, you know. Well, when you don't have the truth, 
and your case is all about presenting the truth, you, <laughs> what are you going to do? So you're going to start out lying, you know, and he's going to start out with uh, flattery. So out of those pearly white teeth will come uh, some fat flattery and really insulting. So here's what he says in a paraphrase. He, he opens up. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews with keen foresight. You have put into place wonderful reforms, which we so enjoy. For all of these things, your excellency, we are so very grateful. And then there's a pause. He takes off his glasses, takes out a handkerchief, and dabs the quarter of his eye. <laughs> well, flattery. That's what he's doing there. Now, he's lying. And everybody in the courtroom, including Felix, knows it. He is hated. The Jews hate the Roman occupiers. And him in particular, church history says, he's a brutal oppressor of the Jews. One little hiccup, and he comes down like a brutal madman. He is known for bloodshed and lust. I have Tacitus, Tacitus the Roman historian, uh, a quote from him about Felix a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. Now, what does that mean of the spirit of the slave? I'm glad you're asking these kinds of questions. <laughs> Listen, uh, it turns out that Felix was born into slavery. He was a slave. Now, his brother got in good with the emperor and was like, BFFs with the guy. He was best friends, all right? And because of that connection, Felix won his freedom. He became a free man. And because of those strings he could pull, he is the first ever in all of history for a slave to go to be a Roman governor over a Roman province, which they called Israel at that time. Now, the Proverbs talk about this kind of situation uh, don't they? Slide, uh, Proverbs 30, rather, 21 through 22. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. Number one, a servant who becomes king. Oh, the terror that's in store when someone is suddenly elevated from a position of unhappy servitude and repression to a position of power when they're not ready for it emotionally or psychologically. All that resentment, all that anger, all that hate, all that insecurity, and now everybody is going to pay. That's the spirit and the truth behind that proverb and the reality of what was going on with this guy. So what a joke to get up there. Everybody in the place knows the truth. And yet, you know, what is he supposed to say? Um, your most excellent scoundrel. Um, <laughs> even though the Jews hate and resent you and all our Roman occupiers, we really do need a favor from you, right? That's not going to work. So what is he going to do? He's going to use flattery. Uh, somebody wrote this, flattery, flatterers rather, want you to think favorably on them and feel their goodwill toward you so you won't notice their true motives and intent. Well, if you put it that way, <laughs> it doesn't sound so good, does it? Flattery is the tool to help dupe the person into giving you what you want from them. 
right? And so flattery is very dangerous. It just is something to be avoided. In fact, the Proverbs say, stay away from a flatterer. And the reason why it says that is because flatterers are, are not seeking your good. And in the end, though, you kind of like hearing something positive from them. Uh, the Bible's trying to warn you, in the end, uh, it, you won't benefit from the relationship. In fact, you'll probably get hurt. So, now something happens. One commentator said, notice the abrupt change from the flattery to suddenly he gets moving again. So, uh, commentators picture Governor Felix rolling his eyes when he's slathering all of this false flattery on him. And so then he says, okay, okay, I'm going to be brief and thank you very much. <laughs> and then he says the three, three charges. So here they are in verses five and six. Number one, Paul's a pest. He's a troublemaker. He stirred up riots all over the world. All right, number two, he's a ringleader of that despised cult the Nazarenes. And everybody in the court went, ew. <coughs> Number three, Paul's a blasphemer, man. He tried to desecrate the temple. Now, we'll talk about what that means in just a bit. So let's just take the charges real quick while we're here. <laughs> Charge number one, smart lawyer. If anything's gonna get Governor Felix's, who represents Rome, his attention is tying Paul to the idea of rioting. Rioting was anathema under Roman rule. Oh boy, they were so famous for their Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, and they were enjoying, and they will, 200 years of uninterrupted peace. Just so much as a little bit of a peep from somebody, boom, it's done. Nobody dared, so there was a riot or that kind of thing. Uh, Felix would lose his job. He could be killed if he allowed a riot to happen. So the lawyer is like, uh, see that man over there? Riots all over the world. It's his uh, problem. And so, you know, is that anything new? <laughs> Jesus was called a troublemaker. I don't know, last week in First uh, Kings chapter 18 with King wicked Ahab and Queen Jezebel causing a terrible three and a half year judgment drought on Israel. As soon as King Ahab lays eyes on Elijah, who's the hero in the story, the believer, he says, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? You, you see, for thousands of years, the people of God have always been branded the troublemakers. Everything's cool here. We could be doing as we please, living life as every man saw right in their own eyes. But you guys are here. You guys, the, the, uh, the moral conscience of the world everywhere, speaking up, causing division, causing people to be alienated. You know, Paul had his issues because of the gospel, and trouble came. How did trouble come? Well, uh, for the Jews, people were hearing the gospel, and as good Jews should, he's the Jewish Messiah, he fulfills 300 Jewish prophecies. So they came to their Messiah, and they left the synagogues, and this made people who stayed in the synagogues envious and angry and created the problem. So yeah, there was a problem. Did Paul start it? 
Well, Paul was being faithful to God and sharing the truth that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And the people who resisted that truth caused the problem. And that's always the way it is. Well, there was trouble in the economies out there. People were getting saved, pagans who worshipped idols, right? And idol industry was big time in, in first century Mediterranean world. And so anybody involved in the trade unions that, uh, that made idols or, or uh, the occult industry, when these people were getting saved, they didn't need rabbit foot. They didn't need to buy lotto tickets anymore. They didn't need to go uh, to the casinos. They didn't, need, they didn't need any of that stuff. And so people were feeling pinched. And who's caused this trouble? Is it the people who are actually worshiping false gods who are mad about hearing the truth and getting angry and then causing the riot? Or is it the truth bearer that says, hey, there's, there's God. He loves you. There's a better way. These ways are false. You shouldn't be bowing down to something your hands made. So, so if a riot starts because you say you shouldn't be worshiping something that you created, is it the fault of the person who said, hey, hey, I'm trying to help you out here. I care about you. Or is it the person who doesn't want to comply? Who's causing the trouble? Well, the person who doesn't want to comply says it's you. And you're the trouble. You're the trouble. We, uh, you know, we have, everybody could be married to whoever they want, but not for you. You cause trouble. You're alienating them. Oh, you guys get to be married and define who you want to be married to. But what about us? We could get married if it weren't for you guys. We're going to get married as we steamroll over you guys. But that's not the point. You're still always causing trouble. We want to have sexual immorality. And you guys are so much trouble. Once in a while, somebody gets pregnant when we're doing our thing. And that inconvenient fetal tissue needs to go. How dare you stand out there and speak up for the unborn? You're causing trouble. It's our body, let us take care of it. Get your business out of our lives, troublemakers. Am I convincing you? <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. You see, you are the trouble. And how do, you, how do you stop being the troublemaker? You stop being a Christian. That's what you'd have to do. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'm not going to cause trouble anymore. <laughs> how would I do that if I'm called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? And yes, the bearer of truth. And so, yes, indeed, trouble follows us. But is the source the love that reaches to reconcile them to God or the hateful reaction to that idea. Charge number two. He's the front man, the ringleader of that cult, the Nazarenes. I love Paul. I don't know. He's just the kind of guy you want to hug and give a kiss on both sides of his cheek. I, He's going to not just defend himself, he's going to defend the gospel. Not only is he going to defend the gospel that just got slammed as a cult, he's going to stick up for the gospel, but he's going to work the gospel in. He's going to be preaching to them. They won't even know it. 
And a lot of Christians who read this don't even know. He's preaching the gospel to them. He does an excellent job. So here's what he says. He, he, he says, uh, first of all, yeah, maybe I am guilty. But here's what of being a Christian. He says, I admit I follow the way which they call a cult. They won't use the word Christian about us because it involves Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So they don't want to use their Christians. They've, they've accepted the Messiah. They want the people of the Messiah. So rather they call us in the most uh, pejorative term they can find, which is Nazareth is where Jesus is from. And apparently Nazareth didn't have a really nice reputation. It's like some podunk town in California, you know, where you say the name and everybody kind of goes, really? You know, let me try it. A couple. <laughs> now, if you're from there, you know what? I truly love your town. <laughs> Weed, California. Weed, California. You know, so, so your honor, he's a ringleader from the Weedies. You know, they called Jesus a Nazarene. Do you remember what, who was, somebody came to, to, was it Philip who said, you know, in John chapter one, hey, we found the Messiah, you know, from now, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, <laughs> the Messiah <laughs> from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Oh, so we see what they're doing. So they take the town and they make fun of it. I was thinking of another little possibility. How about this? Like, I, I like to pick on Katati. I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you why. It's the accordion festival. No, no, no. What's clogging up the traffic? It's the accordion festival in Katati. <laughs> so here's what they say. Let's say Jesus is from uh, Katati. All right, listen. Here's what they say. Uh, he's the ringleader of the, the Katati Illuminati. <laughs> Come on. That was worth a better response. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, that's charge three, the only real charge that could stand if it wasn't just a fat lie, but that he's profaned the temple. Now, what does that mean? I'll give you a picture for the feeling and the outrage of what it means to profane a sacred temple. Two months ago, two churches in New Jersey, to take something that means so much to millions of people uh, that represent truth out of God's holy word and, and just to profane it or to desecrate it is just unconscionable. And so that's the kind of thing that everybody went <gasps> in the courtroom. See, for us, what they say about the temple, we don't feel it. But if it was that and spray painting the sanctuary with profane things all over the place, that would be desecrating our sanctuary, right? And so people would like, like really, in a church? You would really do that in a church? To Jesus? Wow. Hashtag, you're gonna regret that. <laughs> all right. Try it again. Failed <laughs> with the hashtag remarks set. All right. <laughs> Moving on. So 
So now, actually, um, their charge about blasphemy in the temple, you'll remember, um, he was standing in the temple with four Jews, and one of the Paul haters started screaming and assumed that Paul just brought in a Gentile off the street, just slept him in. Hey, you want to see the holy place? Come on in. You know, well, they had some really strict rules. Gentiles could come in off the street, and they had a place to worship. But as you got close to the holy place, God had instituted some pretty serious qualifications as a shadow, a foreshadow of coming before him with the blood of Jesus and prepared in covenant and all of this. And so there were good reasons why God said there's a place for Gentiles and there's a place for uh, people who qualify to be uh, in the holy place. And so they accused him of schlepping a Gentile goy into the place that he was not allowed, and that was a capital offense. And so that wasn't the case at all. And, and so now uh, Tertullus has done, he's told his lies. Let's hear the Apostle Paul. Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they can't prove to you the charges they're now making against me. However, I admit, okay, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law, which means the Old Testament, and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Good job, Paul. <laughs> so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings at the temple. I was ceremonially clean. Now, he's got a shaved head while he's talking. So he's, he has a shaved head because he's ceremonially clean and he's keeping the law. So just the shaved head says, why would I do something when I'm taking a Jewish vow? So he says there, I'm, I was ceremonially clean and they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing, <laughs> you can't resist, that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So good job, Paul. He manages to get them, pretty much the whole gospel in there, and we're going to take a look at that. So Tertullus tells lies and Paul still denies. That's our second point. He denies the charges. 
and tries to set the story straight. So first he begins by avoiding any flattery, right? He avoids the flattery. And he starts out, you know, it's hard to find a compliment about somebody who's evil. So he comes up with something positive. What does he say? He says, you know what? I'm glad to be making my defense before someone who knows what's going on around here. Felix is married to a Jew, Drusilla. You're going to meet her, all right? He's also, later on we hear, well acquainted with Christianity. So Paul knows, he knows everything about Judaism. He's married to one of us. And he knows everything that's been going on. So he says, hey, you know what? I'm pretty happy this morning because I got a guy here and truth uh, is on my side. And I, I happily talk to you as somebody who, who's got the whole picture. Well, that's a nice way to start. So he says, let's set the facts straight. So let's paraphrase 11 through 13. He says, first of all, Your Honor, I'm just a visitor. I've been here 12 days. Wouldn't it take more than 12 days to just organize like some kind of rebellious riot? I'm here for the holidays. Just 12 days ago, that can be verified. Uh, when these guys found me, I was worshiping quietly. No debating, no street preaching, no crowds. I wasn't passing out tracts. I wasn't doing any of that. I didn't even go to the synagogue. And then he says, I love this. The reason I came was to, to bring an offering for my people. My people, the Jews. The Jews were always in money trouble, the Christians. Because... Jews who became Christians were traitors. And so there you are in Israel and Jerusalem, a very Jewish place, trying to make a living. Well, no Jew will, will willingly hire a Jewish believer in Jesus. And so Paul knew that, and he gathered some money from all the troublemaking churches out there and, and brought in thousands upon thousands of shekels to bless them. He said, that's what I was there. I'm offering, making offerings to the temple not desecrating it, bringing gifts, helping the poor. And he says, that's easy to prove. And he says, uh, and then I love this part. He goes, where are the guys who actually started this by accusing me of bringing a Greek into the holy place? Where are they? Tertullus has beads of sweat on his forehead. The only eyewitnesses He's saying, if I were guilty of this, they would have the ones who brought the charges in the first place here. But as it is, they're not here. Why? Because it didn't happen. That's why. And then he says, the only thing these guys were an eyewitness to, and he loves doing this, the only thing that they uh, saw and they, they can testify is that I actually said these words. I'm on trial because I believe God raises the dead. And now there are Pharisees in there, and now everybody's thinking, God raises the dead? I mean, the wicked and the righteous he throws in. So now everybody's getting the gospel, right? And so secondly, he says, let's clear up the misunderstanding, the slam about calling our group a cult. And that's in the Greek, the word is where we get the heresy, the word for sect that they say the Nazarene sect, it's our word for occult or cult. 
you see. And so he clears that up because he wants to defend the faith as well. So he says, okay, guilty as charged. You know what I'm guilty of, sir? I'm guilty of being a Christian. I worship the God of the Bible that they claim to worship. Yes, I belong to the way, which they call a cult. Why was it called the way? Because Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, Jesus, God in a body, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus made such a point about this that it, it was on the hearts of all those who followed him. That's all they said in their preaching. They were famous. He's the way. He's the way to God. He's the only way to God. He's the only way to have your sins forgiven. Jesus is the way to live forever. Jesus is the way to get your sins forgiven. Jesus is the way to be raised from the dead. Jesus is the only way to live forever. And it became the title of Christianity because we were always talking about the way. Raise your hand if you're a follower of Christ. Just raise your hand. Okay. Let me tell you something. You have the truth that the rest of the world does not have. God has entrusted to you a simple thing that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. There's a lot of pressure for you to feel that you have somehow become arrogant or proudful or hateful because you say clearly what your Lord said, that he is the only way. Acts chapter four, verse 12, reiterates that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 10, everybody else is a liar. Every other way is untrue. And so they call us the way. Do not for one second stop telling people how to get to heaven because the world is tired of hearing about it. You in the only way. Oh, Pastor Jim said they had, uh, he had a talk on Friday with a Muslim who, who point blanked him and said, so you're telling me Muhammad's a false prophet? And Jim said, I, I, I didn't know what to say because he point blanked me. There are other ways to, to kind of indirectly help people see the truth. But he asked me, he said, I can only tell you what Jesus says. He is God the Son. He shed his own blood. God, the God-man bled. The God-man has a right to say, if I'm going to shed my blood and take on the sins of the world and provide a narrow way that leads to life, I have the right to say, it's the way and it's the only way. Don't give up ground. You stop saying that. You don't have a gospel anymore. He's the only way. And yeah, that's the part that gets us all in trouble. That's why we're troublemakers is because we're repeating what he said. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 12? He said, I'm the troublemaker. He said, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I'm a troublemaker. Division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three 
against two or two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. The in-law problems there as well. He says, listen, and then he goes on to say, the next one, right, right after that one. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. It's not you. I'm the one who said I'm the only way, that everybody else is a liar. And the only reason you're in trouble is you're repeating what I said. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would be saying what the world likes to hear. If uh, it would love you as its own, as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Cramping our style, man. You know, we're all going this way. You got to turn around and walk the other way. And not only do you turn around and walk the other way, you keep telling me to turn around and walk the other way with you. <laughs> What's wrong with you? I like going this way. But you don't know what ends over there. I don't care. You don't know all of that. So yes, don't back down. He's just saying, Paul just says, hey, I believe everything in the Bible. He says, these guys believe in the Bible. I believe in the Bible. Christianity isn't some weird tangent off of Judaism. It's fulfilled, flowered, blossomed Judaism is Christianity. And so onward, he goes on to say, and then finally he says, you know, and by the way, the reason I'm okay with being in this courtroom and I'm happily make a defense because I'm prepared, he, he goes on to say this, I, I'm prepared for the next courtroom as well. The courtroom which you all will appear at. He throws that in. Because one day he says, God will raise us all up and we'll have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. And notice for the very first time you hear both the wicked and the righteous. And so he says, everybody. And, and God has two sets of people. Those who have been made right with him through Christ and those who have not, those would be the wicked. There's only two kinds. And so he goes on, he says, that's why I live the way I live, with a clear conscience, because I know one day, it's not just about this courtroom, but in the courtroom of the heavens, and those things are eternal. Romans 14, uh, verses 10 through 12. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, God is swearing by himself. He's saying, I swear to God. As surely as I live, says the Lord, swearing by himself, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. God says, if you've lived on the planet, you have an appointment with me because I blessed you with a life and we will talk about it in terms of how you stewarded that life. You either came to a place of being right with me or you did not. And so that's what Paul is trying to bring out. And he did a pretty good job of it. So what has he done? He's cleared up the facts. He's defended uh, the faith. He shared the gospel. And what has he said? Listen to this. Did you even know he said this? There's a way to be saved. It's Jesus, the only way. 
and there's a coming judgment where everyone will stand before the living God, wicked and good. That's amazing. One troubling, by the way, for you to think about, where, where are James, the pastor of the Christian church that Paul came to bless? Where are the elders? Who got him in trouble to begin with? It was that church who suggested, why don't you go out in the temple with four nice Jewish boys so that the whole world could know that truly you are, Paul's a good Jew after all. Amen? You remember the song? <laughs> Paul's a good Jew after all? All right. Do you notice A? Do you see him blaming anybody? I shouldn't even be here. It was the church in Jerusalem put me up to this thing and that. He doesn't blame them because he's gracious and he's forgiving. Where are they wielding any sort of influence? Your honor, we would like to, they're a mega church of Christians in Jerusalem. You don't hear a peep about them ever through any of this. Even when his friends are visiting later in the next paragraph, he's given freedom to have friends come. You don't hear about them. They're born again. So sad. Man of God is under attack and professed Christians don't step up and stand with him. Just the saddest thing. Now, let's finish up. We've got one more guy to hear from, Felix. Now the governor, who was well acquainted with the way, hmm, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he says, I will decide your case. He orders the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew as well. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus, and he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, uh, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, which sounds like a bad disease. <laughs> yeah, things are bad. I just went to the doctor. What do you got? I've got Porcius Festus. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> He's not here, all right? We could talk about him. <laughs> so he's replacing Felix, and wants, uh, who wants to grant a favor to the Jews and leaves Paul behind in prison. So that's just the way Felix is. Okay, Governor Felix, he's unwise. He's a weak-willed man. He's a, a middle-of-the-road kind of guy, non-committal. He likes that. It's safe, you know? He doesn't have to make the Jews upset because he's going to side with clearly an innocent man, and uh, he doesn't uh, also want to condemn Paul, right? Because it's a Roman court, and he could get in trouble for doing that. So he's kind of stuck in the middle, but he definitely knows that Paul is innocent. Let's take a look at this guy and what he says. He says, first of all, hey, when the commander comes, then I'm going to decide your case. <laughs> well, of course you will. He, he, 
he, he doesn't do that, right? And you're gonna see that this is a problem with this man's life. Uh, which sounds better? I'm waiting for the commander to decide your case or I lack the strength and courage to do the right thing. Procrastinating, right? So the commentators say Felix knows in his heart that Paul is innocent. First of all, the commander's already told him that. Second of all, there are no eyewitnesses. Third of all, he's just heard Paul. Uh, And so that explains why he gives Paul some prison perks, if you will. So he's got freedom to roam around a little bit in Herod's palace, awesome. Uh, Free visitor passes, you can have all your friends over. So can you hear the guys around in Jerusalem or or wherever they are now? Hey, you coming to the Bible study on Friday night? Where is it? At Herod's palace. Uh, (laughs) Who's teaching? The Apostle Paul. (laughs) Hey, there'll be treats and everything. You serve snacks and refreshments and, and who's paying for everything? Rome. (laughs) Oh, by the way, when we're not there, he's busy working on some scroll of something about dear, uh, to my dear Ephesian friends. (laughs) He's writing scriptures, right? He's writing to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, to the Philippians and to Philemon. He will finish that work in Rome where he will also be under house arrest. So, you know, apparently he, he wants his wife to hear Paul. There's no TV. They're not going to movies, right? So evening comes. They just finished dinner. And he says, Felix says, hey, Drusilla, listen, I had Paul, the famous Billy Graham, right? Everybody knows Paul. He says, "Uh, you're a Jew. I want you to hear this guy. He sliced and diced Tertullus to pieces. Tertullus went out with a a little whimper, with a little tail wagging back. Whatever, what am I trying to say? <laughs> a tail between his legs, I knew. <laughs> there, there it is. So honey, come on. You, hey, hey, this is, this is the dude your dad killed his best friend James, brother of John. Drusilla is Herod's, who died in Acts 12's daughter. Oh, I throw that in for free. So, um, so wifey and Felix come and sit in the theater, and he says, hey, man, give us, Paul, give us some of that old-time gospel. <laughs> Paul's like, are you kidding me? I get to preach? Well, it's kind of like, you know, a show pony that comes in. Entertain us with some of your gospel talk. Tell us about the way. <laughs> come on. Paul's like, you asked for it. <laughs> so what does he do? He does, he's so brilliant. This guy, he starts with simple faith in Christ. So he says, hey, Drusilla, Felix, you've got a problem. You're going to die someday. You're going to stand before God. You know, sin came into the world through Adam's disobedience and death because of sin, and then death spread to everybody. That's how we got in this pickle. Drusilla, dear, you're going to die. Do you have a plan? I'm going to tell you that God has a plan. God became a man through a virgin womb. That's why we call him Jesus. And he died on the cross for you in love. For God so loved the world. Felix, listen to me. He loves you. He doesn't want you to perish. And all you have to do is believe in his son who bore all of those sins. Now he knows these two are guilty. This is his third wife. And he seduced uh, 
Drusilla out of a marriage that she was already in. She's an adulteress. He's a philanderer. He's a terrible man. He's brutal. So Paul now goes from simple faith to Christ to three things that these two really need to hear. One, getting right with God. His first subject, the righteousness of God. So he says, man, the peace of knowing everything between you and God is okay. He became sin, sinless that he is, on your behalf so you could be right with God. Let me tell you about the peace of knowing that everything between you and God is okay. Second, he goes down to self-control, something neither of them have, but, but all people want. Let me tell you about, instead of being a slave to your own passions, Drusilla, let me tell you about the beauty of mastering yourself and not being a slave to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says something, he knows they're both guilty of both things he just talked about. And then he says, let me tell you about the judgment to come. There's an antichrist coming. There's a battle, Armageddon's coming. The end of the world is coming, but even if you don't make it to that point, the end of your life is coming. And it's written that you will be resurrected and you'll stand before the living God, a great white throne, and he'll say, Drusilla, Drusilla, you know these things. A book will be open, Felix and Drusilla, and, and he'll be scrolling down looking for your name. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And he'll be looking for your name, and if your name's not in there, you will perish. And Jesus, not me, not any church, Jesus described the place as dark and weeping and angry and endless and forever and agony. He'll look for your name, Drusilla. Felix, is your name in the book? It can be, just like I told you. Trust in Jesus. He writes the name in the Lamb's book of life and you'll live forever. And he goes, stop. He's afraid. One quote, if an unrepentant sinner can sit through a gospel sermon and not feel any anxiety about the dangerous state of his eternal soul in light of the teaching of Jesus, the preacher has missed the mark. Everybody's saying, hey, stop making people afraid. Paul, the, the greatest preacher that ever lived, is preaching the gospel Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And the guy goes, whoa, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, somebody told me once, you're just a Christian because you're afraid of going to hell. I go, yeah. <laughs> bingo. <laughs> bingo, bingo. Well, who do you think, and I say to the guy, who do you think put in us the sensibility to be afraid of an eternal threat like that. I mean, when you go hiking and you see a, a snake on the trail, a rattle, you hear the hiss, you get afraid. You step back, right? I don't hear you say, no, you're just afraid. So you step back because you're afraid of the snake. <laughs> well, why don't you get closer? <laughs> you know? Oh, you're a man. <laughs> You're not afraid of anything, man. <laughs> God put in human beings 
a sense of self-preservation. That when the anointing of God and the word of God touches a conscience that knows that it's guilty and has sinned against the holy God and it deserves the wrath of God and eternal death and separation, there should be a sense of fear. It's a blessing. It's a gift. Nurture that so that you'll step back and not be bitten for to be bitten is to die, and to die is the second death, and the second death is forever. You see, stop. You can go now. <laughs> Love this line. I'll send for you when it's more convenient. Charles Spurgeon has like wrapped things up on that line. Charles Spurgeon, British preacher, 1800s. Here's what he said about Felix. Felix. How foolish it is to trust your soul to a more convenient time. (laughs) Will there ever be a more convenient time to be saved from hell and from your sins? To have the love of God. This morning, perhaps, a voice is saying in your heart, prepare to meet your God. And tomorrow, that voice may be hushed. The distraction of life will surely silence that voice that warns you now, and perhaps you will never hear it again. Men all have their warnings from God, and all men who end up perishing have had a last warning. Perhaps this is yours, Felix. What, can I just say in closing what utter madness it is for a soul to know the truth, to have the facts, to be convinced that they are a sinner, that there is a God, that they need to be right before him, to put it all. It is madness. It's insanity. Why would you put, if for one second your soul is an eternal threat of loss, for one second, would it be wise to prolong the risk of that ever happening or at the moment you thinking, I should. I have enough facts. Felix had everything. He was well acquainted with the way. Why would you wait one more second when that could be a very real possibility for your eternal destiny? Just at the moment, right there, let's end that. No way. That's not going to happen. But for many, like this man, who's been kind of a coward all his life, you know, he could have decided for Paul when he had all the facts, but oh no, I got to wait. And then again, oh no, I got to wait. The problem with being in the middle of the road is that you could get run over, all right? You shouldn't hang out in the middle of the road one way or the other way, right? And so we close with, with, with knowing the love of God that waits patiently with open arms. And he says, if anybody finds themselves in a position, the scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2-ish, and it says, today, if you hear the voice of God calling your heart, do not harden your heart as they did, as Israel did in the past, but open and let the Holy Spirit come in and give you new life. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and by the grace of God calling us to a place where we've repented. Most everybody in this room has received the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for that. And we do pray, Lord, for those who have joined us and, and they're not right with God, but you led them here. They're listening, they hear it, they have the information, they know what's the right thing to do. How could you lose accepting Christ and the love of God? There's, it's just win-win. The only thing we lose is our sins and eternal judgment and doing dumb things. So God, we just pray an extra blessing on those who are considering giving their hearts over to the Lord by the end of this service. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the closing song. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask anybody here who doesn't know the Lord, if they'd like to join this group of troublemakers <laughs> and become one yourself, <laughs> in a good sense of that word, to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to others, let people know there's a way to be saved. So why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes. If there's anybody here, you're not right with God, you want to surrender your heart to become a Christian, a Christ follower. You don't have it all together. You're not supposed to. You don't have all the answers to all your questions. You're not supposed to. There's a book for that. And there's an app for that. <laughs> there's there's uh, a Holy Spirit for that. If you'd like to decide today to become a Christian and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Just slip up your hand nice and high so I can see it and we'll have a prayer together as a church. It won't call you out or embarrass you, but you wanna give your heart to the Lord today. Today's your day. And just slip up your hand nice and high so I can see it. I'm looking to my left, looking in the middle here, not calling for anybody to rededicate your life, but first time. Oh, good, there's a hand to my right. Anybody else want to join this new brother? All righty, let's pray the sinner's prayer together. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So here we go. Dear Heavenly Father, I call on the name of the Lord. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, who is God's son who died for me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of all my sins. Me of all my sins. Come into my heart. Give me the Holy Spirit. Help me to live a new life by your power. I give you my heart and life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Heavenly Father, we, we pray for that uh, a few people who have given their hearts to the Lord in that prayer, that you would fill them, help them, protect them, and help them to grow, Lord, into Christian maturity, to walk with you. And for the rest of us, Father, we pray for boldness to live like Paul lived and to put in, uh, to practice these truths that make a difference in people's lives. <clears throat> we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. 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 God bless you. There's prayer at the cross. If not, we'll see you next Sunday or Wednesday night. God bless you.